Have you heard the exciting news? On January 25th, 2023, Tammy Zonker is hosting her first annual and free virtual summit for you and 999 other fundraisers and nonprofit leaders. Transform 23, also known as Fundraising Transformation Virtual Summit, is hyper-focused on equipping fundraisers everywhere to take your fundraising to the next, next level. We've put together 10 wow-packed sessions with you in mind, led by 10 incredible forward-thinking experts to help you transform your fundraising in 2023 and beyond. And a special shout out to our transformation sponsor, The Giving Block. Now here's the thing, while it's free for you to attend, spots are limited. So go to fundraisingtransform.com transform23 and save your spot now. If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars, and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am talking with Birgit Burton. And I have to say, I love this woman. She is an incredible human and enchanting storyteller and a source of knowledge and inspiration in my life, and I am so grateful for her. I have the great privilege of serving as faculty alongside Birgit with the Institute for Charitable Giving, and I learn something new every single time I speak with her or sit down with her over a meal. Moreover, Birgit is chair of the Association of Fundraising Professionals Global Board. She has the distinction of being the first African-American woman in AFP's 60-year history to serve in this role. She's the founder and executive director of AADO. If you, by chance, haven't heard of that, that is the African American Development Officers Network, and you should learn more about it. She launched that initiative, that network, at Georgia Tech in 1998 to provide professional development, education, employment support, mentorship, and networking opportunities for African-American fundraisers. She is a well-regarded speaker on the topics of fundraising and diversity and has authored articles on diversity in the fundraising profession, co-authored the book, The Philanthropic Covenant with Black America, and contributed to the book, Five Minutes for Fundraising, a collection of expert advice. Birkett says she would also honor to tell her personal story in the book, Collecting Courage which shares the lived experiences of Black women and men working in a nonprofit and charitable space. And I can tell you, I own that book. I have read it cover to cover. And it's so insightful to me as a white woman working in the profession. I encourage everyone to read that. During Birgit's 25-year career as a fundraiser at Georgia Tech, she was selected to participate in the first cohort of Leading Women at Tech and chosen as one of the 2020 faces of inclusive excellence, which recognized faculty, staff, and students committed to gender diversity, 
Equity and Inclusion. Birgit received the Opportunity and Inclusion Award from the Council for Advancement and Supportive Education, which recognized her leadership in fostering inclusion and diversity within the fundraising profession. And in 2020, the RISE Fund was established in Birgit's honor with a mission to advance women in color in fundraising by providing resources, inspiration, support, and education. Birgit chairs the A.E. Low Grace Scholarship Fund, serves on the advisory board of Hosea Helps, chairs the Ahmad Aubrey Foundation, and advises the Aspen Leadership Group. She's also a member of Alpha Kappa Sorority. Birgit earned her bachelor's degree in media communications from Medale College in Buffalo, New York, and serves on its boards of trustees. And that's it for the episode of the Intentional I Fundraiser oh, Podcast. I'm ready to take a nap. No, it's just, Birgit, you're such an accomplished woman and leader in this sector. It takes a minute to do you justice. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you. And welcome to the show. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management and online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. Thank you. I am honored to be here with you. You're on the top of the list of my favorite people. I just enjoy our friendship and being able to spend time and share. And so being on this podcast of yours means everything to me. So thank you for inviting me here. It's my privilege and my honor. And and your words mean a lot to me, Birgit. Thank you. So let's start by learning how you began your career in fundraising. Some people say they fall into fundraising and some people choose the profession. Birkit, what's your story? Yeah, I did not choose this profession. It chose me. I was on my way to a career on Broadway. I had spent a year studying classical voice. I did theater in my high school, but I also did community theater. So back in the days when folks were doing theater in the the community, I happened to be one of those people who got one of those jobs at 17 years old and did a production, a dinner theater production of Guys and Dolls. And so I enjoyed it. I loved it. And that's what my plan was. And then I attended the State University of New York at Fredonia. I was one of 15 freshmen they chose for their musical theater program. And I was on my way. And believe it or not, my advisor sat me down and said, we really need to talk about this as a career for you. And Tammy, it wasn't because I wasn't talented enough. Those 15 of us were out of nearly a thousand that auditioned for those coveted spots. Wow. He said, and this is in 1980. Okay, so not 20 or anything like that. 1980, he said, this is not going to be an easy road for you as a black woman. So I would suggest that you don't put yourself through that and choose another career. And I listened to him. And let me tell you, my parents, who were both the first in their families to 
graduate from college and who lived through the civil rights movement, they had no idea that's why I left school on pursuing a degree in, in the theater because they would have marched my behind right <laughs> back to school and said, no, that is not a good reason to leave. But I ended up changing my major to media communications. And through that experience, I got connected with the United Negro College Fund and they were hiring college graduates who would be interested in pursuing a fundraising career. And it was new to me, but I thought, hey, why not? how it happened. I love that. Yeah. Now now I want to hear you sing, but I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> it has been quite a while, but I am a in the shower, belter outer. Oh, and the concerts I hold in my car going down the highway. The best <laughs> I love it. ever. I love it. So now 25 plus years later in your career as a fundraising professional and a nonprofit leader, what have been some of your proudest moments? So when I think about that, I've had many moments that it just seems to me that every moment that I've been able to do something that makes a difference in an organization, with an organization, in an individual's life. So at Georgia Tech, 25 years, which by the way, this is a little humorous, but I am celebrating my one-year anniversary of having retired from Georgia Tech. I, I just signed another contract with them for another six months. So I haven't really left. I am still working. I retired, but working. That's what they officially call it. They're but never I, letting you go. I've got to go. I have other things to do, but I put a lot of work into the foundation relations department. And until my successor is identified and I can help onboard them, I don't want to leave. And so we're getting close to making that appointment. But in 25 years, some of my proudest moments have been, I can tell you two specifically at Georgia Tech. One was a grant, a gift I was able to successfully negotiate with the Motorola Foundation to name a chair in the School of Electrical and Computer Engineering. And the first, and it was a chair with, they were specifically interested in a person of color serving as the, the chairholder. And the first person to serve in that role is now the chancellor at uh, the University of California at Davis, Dr. Gary May, who I just absolutely love and adore him. And he's an amazing person. And I was able to work with Motorola on that opportunity in 2003, a few years after I got to Georgia Tech. And so that's meaningful to have done that. And there have been many other wonderful grants that I was able to be a part of. But some of the smaller ones that provided scholarship opportunities for students who would not have had the opportunity to go to Georgia Tech. And then some really small programs that I was able to raise $25,000 for. Not yeah. the, the Motorola multi-millions or even the $30 million to put the Candida building on campus, but got $25,000 for that program, the benefit of those students doing research in one of our labs from a local high school. That brings me joy. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. So during that same time, what have been some of your biggest regrets or disappointments in the profession? So when I think about this, Tammy, and I'm thinking about the profession. So as the profession, 
I'll tell you that at the time that I entered the profession, I had been in it for a long time. I had said when he was speaking at a luncheon I had attended, and he said that it was more respectable. This is at this particular time, like in the late 80s, more respectable to play piano in a bordello than to be a fundraiser. Oh, so goodness. when I came into the profession, it was like, yeah, here comes the fundraiser, hide your kind of thing. And so I appreciate where we are now. We are truly a respected profession and I enjoy and appreciate that. But a disappointment of mine is looking at the numbers of professionals of color and it, it, it's nothing to brag about, right? So I can highlight numbers that I know that the Association of Fundraising Professionals have noted. And so the Association of Fundraising Professionals pre-pandemic had about 33,000 members. And of that 33,000, 9% who uh, responded to the, the member demographic survey, 9% were people of color. And 4% were African-American. Oh. And so that's one of the things, and we'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about my vision for AFP. But that's been a, a disappointment for me to see those numbers be so low and to really kind of dig in and find out why. Yes. You know? Yeah. What is it? What are the barriers to attracting and really creating Retain. a space where they feel yeah. like they people of color belong? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, that is a great segue. As you as you step into your role as chair of the AFP Global Board, and by the way, um, congratulations and thank you. <laughs> thank you. Let me be honest, okay? Honest to, to all your listeners. It was nothing I really had in my plans, right? So I've been a member of AFP since it was the National Society for Fundraising Executives, NSFRE. So I've been a member for over 30 years. I served as the president of the Greater Atlanta Chapter in 2009 during the downturn in the economy. It was really challenging to serve at that time. And then I joined the board of the AFP, the global board, in around 2013 and then served up until this time when I was elected chair. But all that time that I was serving on the board, I saw the people who were serving as the chair of the global board, and it seemed like a, a pretty tight select group. You sort of already know who was in the queue. And because serving in that role really is a six-year commitment, two years as chair-elect, two years as chair, and then two years as immediate past chair, I just didn't see where I would be able to get into the, the cue for that. And then a staff member who I just absolutely love, and I don't mind calling out her name. She's no longer at AFP Global, but she was one of the authors of Collecting Courage. Her name is Heba Mahmoud. Heba said to me, and she was doing the work in the diversity inclusion space at, at the, she said something along the lines of blah, blah, blah. And when you become chair, you know, of AFP, <laughs> And I said, Burnt. I said, yeah. oh, no, 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 oh, honey, no. <laughs> no, 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 that's not, I don't see that. And she said, why not? And I said, well, I really couldn't give a good answer, except that it just had not been something I had thought about. 
Yeah. And, but she planted the seed, Tammy, because I could never get it out of my head. I was like, could I? And what would I do? I've done a lot of firsts, right? But I don't want to just be the first. I want to be able to look back. And was I able, it's not all about me, but collectively and with me being able to be in a leadership role. So I really had to think, and I had to think at the time that I submitted my interest in, in being nominated, what I wanted to accomplish. So a couple of things that I can say is obviously I've touched on this, but well, first I want to increase the numbers of professionals entering into fundraising because we're losing them that people are changing careers. They're going to wealth management. They're going to the other side of the table in awarding grants, giving money away, and people are going into consulting and then retiring and unfortunately passing away. So the numbers are significant of those professionals that we're losing. So I definitely want people to see fundraising as a true profession that they can really utilize their talents. And and then I want to see an increase in diversity in the profession and those opportunities. Um, and how do people find out? AFP has collegiate chapters, but very few at all at historically Black colleges and universities. Where do we meet the students that we can educate them on what a career as a fundraiser looks like? So that's yeah. a, a big thing. And I could go on and on about that. The second thing, and this has been out there in social media a little bit recently, but I'm really interested in a fundraiser's bill of rights. And we started having this conversation a few years ago. This is nothing new. There are many who have already begun work in this area. The Nature Conservancy is one of those organizations that had already completely written a fundraiser's bill of rights. There are two incredible women, Amelia Garza and Jennifer Holmes, who actually wrote and copyrighted a fundraiser's bill of rights that AFP lifted up and published about it in advancing philanthropy. And so we, AFP, struck a task force in that area. You would be shocked, and maybe you wouldn't be shocked, but the stories that I've heard Mm -hmm. from people who have been mistreated, offended, just downright taken advantage of, spoken inappropriately to, who represent in ways that maybe some donors don't want to deal with these individuals. They've been called racist names. They have been asked to leave. And so I'm hearing these stories and said, we definitely have to create a document that sets the standard for how fundraisers should be treated. Yeah. Period. And then lastly, what I want to focus on are our chapters, the ASP chapters. What does a chapter look like? Because we have wonderful large chapters out there with hundreds of members and dues-paying members and great leadership. But we also have smaller chapters and smaller chapters who I think of a longtime AFP member respected former board member, Alice Ferris, who oh, yes. is in his chapter, Alice. And Alice has served as president of her chapter like three or four times because it's a small chapter and they don't have the leadership. So I'd really like to 
potentially strike a task force that will look at chapters. Maybe we could have a hub chapter or hub chapters with small groupings that are part of that hub chapter, but they don't have to be a formal chapter and Mm -hmm. meet the chapter accord and file the 990 and all the responsibilities that go along with that. You might have 30 members who have lunches or occasional educational sessions or events and maybe one big annual gathering or meeting with that sort of sponsoring chapter, something like that. Sure. I think that AFP Alaska is a great example that really mirrors what you're describing. So they have a concentration of members in Anchorage and then a hub group of members in Fairbanks, which is about a six-hour drive. Yes. So Fairbanks zooms into Mm -hmm. educational sessions. They all come together for National Philanthropy Day, a day of education, a day of honoring. So, yeah, I love that. It just widened the resource pool. I think so. The last thing I'll say about that is when I think about, so right now, AFP's membership is at about 27,000, right? But registered nonprofits with the IRS just in the U.S. alone is over 1.5 million. And so if each one of those organizations, and I know some, many of them are higher ed, they're churches, and yes, Some organizations don't even have a fundraiser and some have hundreds. But for kicks and giggles, let's just say that of that 1.5 million, each had one fundraiser, just one. That's 1.5 million fundraisers out there. So 27,000 members of AFP is only touching a fraction of those fundraisers out there who need what AFP has to offer. So that's important to me. How are we missing them? What can we do to have them be a part of AFP and benefit from the resources and the, the networking and the toolkits and all that we have to offer the code of ethics in the, the profession? So anyway, I got I two years, it. Tammy. Two, it's just, <laughs> That's all. We're just going to knock okay. that out in two years. No, I love the synergy between it too. When there is a Bill of Rights, I've heard the stories too around school harassment, just the power dynamics that exist and how unhealthy that can be between donors and fundraisers. When we set some standards yes. and hold people to account, hold our, even hold ourselves to those healthy boundaries, perhaps we will keep more of our fundraisers in the profession and attract more. And I love your strategy around helping to strengthen and bolster and connect smaller chapters, mid-side chapters, start up new chapters. These are not silos, clearly. There's a real synergy to what you're talking about by design. So it's really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So it will be interesting. I just want to make a date two years from now as you're looking (laughs) back. Yes, put the pressure on. So now I really had to make sure, right? I want to be able to report on that side of it. Here's what we were able to accomplish. And this past weekend was our global board retreat in preparation for what we're doing in 2023. And I chaired that, even though I officially become the chair January 1st and Kevin Foyle 
my adore, who will be the immediate past chair. He steps back, lets me chair that meeting. And I was nervous. I was nervous, nervous, nervous. Didn't want anyone to sit there in that meeting and go, who picked her? <laughs> we would you know. Listen, it was energized. This is an amazing board. And I've been on the board 12 years. There's a limit of eight. But if you move into leadership, which I did, I became the chair elect, then the clock stops ticking, right? You don't have to, to cut out at eight years. So I was right at my eighth year. It's either be chair or head on back to just working with the local chapter and, and doing my other things. And so I had an amazing meeting and this is an energized board. And they were already, and we were barely out of the meeting and the text messages were coming in going, what's next? How are we following up on, we focused on governance for the association. What's next? The consultant that facilitated this. We want the report. It was what we, all those post-its that are on the wall. Oh, I love it. So well, congratulations. That is exciting. And I'm really looking forward to what is to come and and how we at the chapter level can support and engage. and Because it is a collaboration, clearly. Yes, most definitely. You're part of the Detroit chapter. I'm part of the Detroit chapter and the Northeastern Indiana chapter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I spoke at their end of the year meeting last week or the week before. And I shared some of my vision. And I, that was my first test of this publicly. And I got great feedback. So I was like, I can say this on Tammy's podcast because nobody was throwing rocks at me on the screen. It's really exciting. So Birka, we've talked about some of the challenges in our profession. And clearly we've talked about wanting to keep people in our profession and attract more. And one of the statistics that is so troubling is that the average tenure of a fundraiser in the U.S., depending on which study you read, is 18 to 24 months. And as in most professions, we have issues around pay equity and overall inclusion, as you've spoken about and we've all read about, and inclusion of people who are differently oriented or differently abled, be it physically or neurodiverse. So AFP, as you've said, has really been focused up until this point. I mean, you've talked about like what's next. But there have been some investments and focus areas, some initiatives that have been around for a while. And they're deep, they're broad, and those are the AFP Diversity and Inclusion Initiative, mm -hmm. the Fundraising and Workplace Climate Initiative, mm -hmm. and the AFP Emerging Leaders Work with a special focus on women's impact. Mm -hmm. So I know that is a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Talk talk to us to the degree you can in the time we have mm -hmm. about these initiatives, what's been accomplished, what's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. What are some of the biggest barriers that we face recognizing this is a marathon and not a mm -hmm. success? I'm glad you're lifting these up because all three of these areas are important work for AFP. And I don't want people to, to think that when we have our chapter meetings, that it's about sitting around, eating lunch, networking. And yes, we have important topics, but there's also work going on at the global level, focuses on these areas that is lifting up important work and important focus. And I would hope that you would invite me back 
with a few others to talk about these at a deeper level, but I'll give you some kind of a summary of some of these. Um, our diversity and inclusion work is now called IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. And I'm not patting myself on the back, but I just love that I was working with Heba Mahmoud, who was on staff at, when I was the chair of IDEA, and it was still diversity and inclusion. And we were looking back at the last diversity summit. It was like four or five years ago. We were looking back to the 2013 diversity and inclusion summit. And from that came some findings, some action items. And so when I had the opportunity to chair our diversity and inclusion initiative, I said, let's look back and what came out of that summit that we needed to do. And so we created some committees around those. And that's how we ended up in the new definition of diversity and inclusion for AFP coming up with IDEA. And at first it was a little cutesy. There were a few chapters that were like, yeah, nah, thanks. We'll pass on that. That's corny, just that, that acronym. But I'm happy to say everybody's on board now, but it's so a part of the work that we're doing. Nobody even bats an eye. So we've made great strides in our diversity and inclusion work. And we've got a long way to go. And so AFP is integrating idea into everything we do. So it's not just the committee. And you know about how more organizations are saying, listen, let's weave everything through an idea lens. Absolutely. So that includes diversifying our speakers, right? Our content writers, integrating, integrating idea topic in, in our conferences. We're also requiring salary ranges on all job posting to the AFP job board. Our research shows that jobs with salary ranges get 30% more attention. So we're really focused on that. We developed our virtual affinity group program to give people the opportunity to connect with those from similar backgrounds or who have similar professional and personal challenges and interests. And those groups meet two to three times a year. We're currently working in the accessibility space. So with experts to create a toolkit to help organizations in AFP chapters in that space. And, and in 2021, AFP released our findings from a research collaboration of nine organizations sponsored by DonorPerfect, focusing on the issues of idea in the fundraising profession. And based on survey responses from more than 2,000 fundraising professionals. And that survey is out there if anybody wants to find the results. It's on the AFP Global website? Yes. Mm -hmm. oh, perfect. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Perfect. In the Fundraising and Workplace Climate Initiative, which is part of our Women's Impact Initiative, we call it WE. Our biggest and well, most recent success was earlier than this earlier this year when AFP released the Speaking Truth to Power Toolkit by Dr. Megan LaPierre-Schlup and Dr. Aaron Beaton. They're professors at John Glenn College of Public Affairs at the Ohio State University. And the toolkit both expands their understanding not just of harassment in the fundraising profession, but also of bias, bullying, and discrimination. Um, and the next steps are to continue to share this training with organization leaders to improve workplace culture and lower the high incidence of sexual harassment 
and bullying in the sector. And then the AFP Emerging Leaders Initiative, which is sponsored by BlackBod, it lifts up the voices of those newer to the profession and provides specific networking and education opportunities to help them grow into the fundraising profession. So virtual book clubs, career development affinity groups, which facilitated by Corn Ferry and a yearly virtual emerging leader workshop, and then leadership development day at our AFP lead, which is in October. And the women's impact, the content at our international conference and our lead conference centers around women's issues and women's leadership development. And so it includes webinars and interviews and a mentor program for women's leadership development sponsored by the Alfred. We're doing lots of stuff. Lots of I mean, great lots of stuff. stuff. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So thank you for allowing me to, to lift that up. Our friends at Bloomerang know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. Yeah, and so anyone who's listening you can gain access or learn more about these initiatives and these opportunities to engage and grow and expand and contribute by going to the AFP Global website and also talking to your local AFP chapter leaders. Absolutely. And so I encourage people to consider volunteering at this level. We invite volunteers once a year. We have an application process in October. So we're past that, that process now. But you can pay attention, join these webinars, join these affinity groups, find out where your interests might lie. And then we open up the application process around the end of summer, beginning of fall, and it closes October 31st of 2023. And you can be a part of one of those committees that you'll find out in December. Somebody listening to this might say, really, volunteers going through an application process. But let me tell you. I've been a volunteer for a long time, and there are people who just want to add something to the resume, check off a box, and they're really not committed. And so the application process just helps kind of make it clear to the person who's considering it what the expectations are. As you answer those questions, you might decide, hmm, this is a little more that I really want to be involved with. But then it also helps those who are looking for the volunteers to see where your talent, your expertise lie, and for you to really demonstrate that you're interested in this work and that you would be committed. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so important. If we really are going to move these very important initiatives forward and solve some of these problems, it really is going to take roll up your sleeves and do the work. Most definitely. Yes. I can just tell you one little funny story before we got to our Zoom meetings, which makes a huge difference now, right? We used to have our conference call over the phone. And so you couldn't see people, but you knew people had it on the speakerphone and they were answering emails and doing whatever. And occasionally you would get the person who would put the phone on hold, 
right? <laughs> they push the, the hold button. And we'd have to listen to the music or the advertisement. Thank you for your volunteer support of the so-and-so organ. <laughs> or like, somebody get so-and-so on the phone and tell them it's better yeah. to hang up, dial back in, and then to force us to listen to your on-hold music. Yes, we can't mute you like we do in Zoom now exactly. if, if there's some background noise or something. Oh, yes. You're bringing back memories. Well, Birgit, let's shift to your role as founder and executive director of AADO, the African-American Development Officers Network. You've told us a little bit about your passion for making certain that our profession is inclusive and has the richness of all voices and perspectives and lives experiences. But tell us in your own words a little bit more about the unique purpose that AADO serves. Mm -hmm. So when I started at Georgia Tech, in 1998, I was the first frontline fundraiser of color that Georgia Tech had hired. And I really actually didn't realize that at the moment because there were, you know, development staff people, there were a few other people of color in the room, but it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized and understood that they were administrative people or held other roles and responsibilities than frontline fundraising. And my first 11 years in the career, as I said earlier, was with the United Negro College Fund, which was raising money for historically Black colleges, universities, private historically Black colleges and universities. And I worked with professionals and others. 95% of the organization at that time, I would say, were people of color, particularly African-American. And so I missed that. And let me explain what I missed because I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying. It wasn't that I wanted to see a bunch of Black people. It was that I was in a position where I walk into a room, you see my color. My color becomes that thing that you see. Working at a university where it was established for young men. It was an all-male university, all white. The first African-Americans to matriculate at Georgia Tech was not until 1961. And so it was a long time and they were not welcome when they did come. So I'm raising money for this university. I sat next to an alum at a luncheon, my first week, a scholar's luncheon, my first week at Tech. And he was 85 years old. And he told me, then it told me he remembered the good old days when there were no Blacks or women at Georgia Tech. So my, the color of my skin was something that was a focus every day. I wanted a network of people where we could talk about best practices, the fundraising profession, support one another. And color was not the first thing that showed up when I entered a room. I entered a room with other professional fundraisers. And there were 25 of them. Maybe we saw color because we were like, hey, we're all back. How about that? And let's talk about the work. Yeah. And let's also talk about some of the challenges we experience. And you get it because we look like. So, Tammy, that group, there were others who were like, well, we heard about you all getting together and we want to join. Right. So we grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And then came a point when people said, well, I'm not Black. I'm not a person of color. I support this network. 
And so let me in so that I can be here to do what I can to make this fundraising world a better place for you. So now the AADO network has almost 3,500 members, about 85% are people of color, and the others are allies and talent managers. Because of course, talent folks want to get in where we are because we need more people of color in these fundraising positions. I don't have a problem with that. And so a few years ago, we filed for our 501c3 and somebody has to lead this organization. So I am the executive director and I will take us into the next few years. And then I will step back and let a new leader step in and I will stay on the board. Yeah. You really are a visionary. Like you see a need, you step into it. You are a woman of first, for sure. And I'll tell you, our sector and really the world is better for it. And I know that AADO hosts a conference on diversity, philanthropy, and leadership. Mm -hmm. And the 2023 conference is scheduled for April 11th through the 13th. So just a few days before AFP Icon. I know. I know. I'm like, I'm getting rested up now. (laughs) Tell us about it. The original gathering of 25 of us back in Atlanta, beginning of AADO, the next year turned into something more formal of a gathering. And that became our first conference. And then we had the conference for about a decade. And it was hard to put on. I would be allowed by Georgia Tech to take a couple of months to help plan the conference. And then we started partnering 11 years ago with the, the Council for Advancement and Support of Education case. They're the, the conference gurus, right? Yes. You know how to negotiate the venue, do all the work that is involved in organizing a conference. And then we can, we ADO, can focus on programming. And we do that with case as well. And so the conference is... I'm going to say we have somewhere between 250, 300 people. We've had to, the last few years, we've had to shut down registration about a couple of weeks out because we were overselling. It's growing. And the, the program is around fundraising and leadership with the overarching theme of diversity, particularly people of color and also the LGBTQ community. And so the sessions focus on that. Our keynote speakers and panels focus on, and it's a great conference. I just love it. It's rich and it's people come together and it's almost like going to church revival or something. If you're not, you're like, oh, you feel so fortunate to have learned and connected with people with this interest of diversity in this space. And so it'll be in Atlanta, April 11th through the 13th. You can go to the AADO website at aadonetwork.com and you can find all the information. We are still finalizing the program, so folks won't see the program up just yet. I can guarantee you it's going to be good and it should be on the website after the new year. Yeah, that's exciting. I know I have it on my calendar. I'm planning to attend. Yeah, looking forward to it. Birgit, at the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions mm-hmm. to provide just a little more value to our listeners. Are you game? I am. Let's All do right. it. All right. First question What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? 
he who has knowledge has power. Mm. That is my favorite because you might think you deserve to be at the table for whatever reason, because you have the title, that's your responsibility. But I have learned, especially as a Black woman, full-figured, right? Because I get discriminated against because I'm full-figured. I will be discriminated against because I'm a woman or because of the color of my skin. But I always make sure I know something. And I know something that you don't know or they don't know. And I, they make sure I'm at the table because she knows or she has that relationship or she's connected or she's got that valuable piece. And so I may deserve to be there for 50 different reasons, but I'm there because I've got knowledge. So I always make sure I know. Love that. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? Of course, Collecting Courage. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, the reason that I recommend it is because there are many different stories of the experiences of people of color in this profession. And you might think or you might hear when I start here or there, I learned from reading the co-author stories of their journey. Everybody has a different story. And my story, and it's around a theme, the, these themes, and mine was around love. And I'll tell you, Tammy, that mine talks about my journey of being adopted. I'm biracial. My mother, birth mother's German. And what I experienced and that she gave me up for adoption at the age of three because she didn't want me to have to live with that racism. But I have all of that in meeting my grandmother. She really set me on this course as a fundraiser. But I also learned reading their stories that I had experienced some of those things and had not really accepted it. I put it to the side because I did have privilege. I was treated well in my organization and I didn't want to throw anybody under the bus by saying anything negative. So it's very helpful to read others' experiences. So I recommend that book. I will echo that. It was a very powerful read for me as well. As a white woman, I think I know, and, and I, I have been a fundraiser in the city of Detroit which is a predominantly Black community, yeah. and have hired and worked alongside some extraordinary fundraisers of color. And so I heard stories from them. I've witnessed things. And I thought I knew, pretty much I knew what racism looked like in a profession. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I was still floored. Yeah, There were this other microaggression, just yeah. other experiences that... Yeah. I couldn't even fathom. Yeah. 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 Okay. Next question. What, in your view, are the three most important traits successful fundraising professional must possess? So I like this question. And my answer for some of your listeners who are picking up their pen and getting ready to write this down, right, might be thinking a whole different list than what I'm about to say. But there's a reason behind why. I think that these are important traits. One is the ability to listen. Sometimes we are so ready to tell our thing. You ever have somebody cut you off in the middle? Like you say something they identify with and they take it and run. These people, they want to tell their thing so bad. They don't listen. But I had an experience with an alum of a university 
it would take too long to tell you this story, but he was black and he told the 33 development professionals, 32 were white, one was black, don't ever come see me if you're white. It was black alum, prominent black alum, who had a successful career with a major corporation and they were all mortified. I had put this panel together to help them understand how to approach people of color. And then that three weeks later, he made a sizable gift to the university. And I think you might've heard me tell this story before. Yeah. And because someone cared, someone listened and understood what it is that he wanted to do. And as a fundraiser, that is so critical to be able to listen to what the donor cares about. The second thing is empathy. I know it was like, well, how does that make me be a good fundraiser? I was at a university. I was raising money for everything from epitaxial graphene to an arts education program, right? But in every situation I was in, I really needed to, whether it was working with those faculty, whether it was working with the executive director of an organization, whether it was listening to the people who needed home or food. When I listened with empathy, I feel that it made me a better fundraiser. And I just really don't have more to add to that as human beings. I know there's a science and an art to fundraising. When you can show up and listen and then hear with a caring heart, I think it makes us better people. And I think it contributes to our ability to be successful fundraisers. And the last thing is to be a good storyteller. And if you can't tell a good story, then they need to sit down with you and learn because storytelling is huge in our profession. I have reeled so many people in by telling a good story about whatever it is. And I have been reeled in by a good fundraiser who tells a story and just gets me on that hook and I am sold. So listen, be empathetic and be a good storyteller. Those are my three. Beautiful. Beautiful. Birgit, what's your favorite fundraising tool or application? So this is not for fundraising, but as organizational, it's a great tool to help you be organized. And for me, I can't have all those things where I have to figure out where I enter this in and how I, whatever. Basecamp, for me, I love Basecamp because I could get off of a call and create a Basecamp project file and make it the title of whatever the conversation was that we had and create my action items, my to-do list in there. And I can loop anybody into that Basecamp project file that I need to. They don't have to subscribe to Basecamp. I have a Basecamp file that has over 300 projects in it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yes. And that may sound insane, but I'm telling you, I had one for our podcast conversation and I have it in your name. And so all I've got to do is look for, I don't make it some deep thing that'll be difficult because you know how you don't remember what you called something later. (laughs) And and I'm assuming that with a name like Zonker, it doesn't get confused with any other projects. No, no. And I have that and I've got my notes in there and I can put emails in there. And so I love Basecamp. I really do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What's your favorite conference or ongoing learning over your, over your career? What's your go-to? 
You know, I, I have difficulty with this one because I should say ICON, AFP's International Conference. I love ICON. I've been going since I became a member of NSFRE, I, but I have liked it more for the the fellowship and the networking and sharing in groups, in conversations, those best practices. I would put that on the list. But I have to say, I think the best conference is the AADO case conference because we put so much work in because of the small conference and because we only have two parallel tracks, fundraising and leadership. And Tammy, we've got to make sure, and we do make sure that that conference in those sessions are the bomb, right? Because when you go to ICON, there are over a hundred sessions. You can walk into one, sit in the back and in five minutes go, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Or, man, I know this already or whatever. And just kind of quietly walk out and go down the hall to another one. But our conference is so small that if you go into a session and it bombs, you don't like it, you're going to spend the next hour having a cup of coffee and just waiting for the next one. So Very good. All right, last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self or someone else just getting started in the profession? When I was thinking about this question, I wasn't as impatient as my younger self as uh, younger folks are today. They, and I'm not criticizing them for this because I've heard, I'm a boomer, and I've heard millennials talk about us baby boomers. We hijacked Facebook. We're too loyal. We stay at jobs way too long. This whole list. And then I heard people talk about millennials. They're not as committed. They come to work when they want to. They're chasing the salaries and titles. And so I would tell my younger self, and I was patient, but I would tell my younger self that the biggest thing to focus on for me is health. I did not focus enough on my, and I'm working on it now. I'm trying to course correct as an old lady because I still have some years <laughs> left before I, I go sit on the beach with my drink with the umbrella in it somewhere. But I wish I had taken better care of myself. All the work that we have to do, all the different directions we go into mean nothing if we are not healthy. To be there for our colleagues, to be there for the organizations we serve, how about to be there for our family, for those people who love us and want us to be around for a long time? So I know the question is about fundraising, but I add this in as a very important part of fundraising because there's so much work in, in the work that we do that if we don't show up with self-care being at the top of the list, we can't be good fundraisers. Yeah. It's you an know. important message. Vision. Thank you. Yeah. And I will tell you this last thing. I'll end on this. I spoke at the Birmingham chapter a couple of days ago, at Birmingham, Alabama, and I was standing up. I had been going, 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 and that I had not eaten anything that morning. And I was standing there on the stage and they were asking a lot of questions and I got dizzy. I was very tired, had not eaten. I had taken some medication and I 
was asked a question and I couldn't think of the answer. I wasn't having a stroke or anything like that, but she asked for me to give a list of member benefits. Yes. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> member benefits. And I you said, had not been taking care of yourself. No, I was tired and the room was starting to spin. I'd been standing on the stage for 45 minutes, giving everything I had. And I apologized and said, listen, I'll get that list. I've got a great list for you. That's not what you'll see on the website. And I got then off the stage and drank a glass of water and said, never again, do this to myself. Yes. Oh. And the new year is just around the corner. Well, I don't practicing now in, yes. in preparation for those new year's commitments to take care of ourselves. Yes. Yeah. So good. Birgit, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Tammy. Oh, our pleasure, truly. If you want to learn more, Birgit, AADO, or AFP Global, we've included links in today's show notes, and you'll also find links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, and keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.